Welcome back to the first talk evidence of 2022. We took a little break over Christmas, uh, but there's been a lot going on, and this is going to be quite a full episode for you. Uh, this week, Helen's looking into isolation periods um, for those who have or been exposed to COVID. Um, we're looking at principles of open data transparency, a perennial talk evidence topic. And lastly, given what's going on with the weather around the world, Joe's bringing us some environmental papers that got published at the end of last year. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined by Helen MacDonald. Hi, Helen. Hi, Duncan. And Joe Ross. Hey, Duncan. How are you? Very good. Well, I'm all right, actually. It's my birthday this week, and I had a lovely thing planned with friends, but that's no longer happening because... Um, about 60% of us are going to be, not me personally, but amongst my friends, are going to be in isolation. So it kind of leads me on to um, finding out. I've got, That's very sad, Duncan. It, you, can, you, can, you can celebrate over Zoom. I'm sure it's just as exciting. <laughs> you know, to be honest, I've had enough birthdays by now that I'm okay to put it off for a little while. But it would be nice to know, you know, when would be safe to do it again. So, yeah, um, you're not I'm, as old and wise as you sound, Duncan. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> Never as wise, anyway. Um, so, Hells, you've been looking into this and uh, perfect timing for me. Um, Absolutely. What have you been well, doing? I saw a prediction uh, from WHO that more than half of Europe would get the Omicron variant over the course of January and February. And I haven't been investigating that claim, but it does feel like it's been playing out in my life as well as your life, Duncan, because we were, my household, not me, but everyone pretty much else in my household got COVID last week. So we have also been in various forms of isolation and taking uh, lots of lateral flow tests in order to leave our premises. But we're through that now. Um, oh, sorry to hear that. It's just the way things are in Europe at the moment, Joe. I'm sure it's heading your way too. But despite this, my sense was, building over the Christmas period, there were these announcements from the US that the um, CDC had lowered the isolation time um, required if you had COVID. And the same happened over here, that it reduced um, down to seven days initially um, before Christmas. And the UK government sort of felt they had it right, or I think they said words to that effect. And then they've been lowered again a little bit. And I was trying to um, get my head around what's changed, what what's the evidence behind this, and and how's how are things been developing? Um, does, it, does it count, Helen, Helen that, that what's changed is that people are just sick and tired of being in isolation? <laughs> well, I tried to do better than that, Joe. I tried to find a more satisfactory explanation than this. And of course, because we are evidence geeks on this show, I had to begin with the evidence. And actually, in this case, neatly summarized for you on bmj.com, you can go and read an opinion piece, which is written by Michael Soyak and Azim Majid, who's a professor of primary care and public health. And they have written about um, this reduction in isolation periods in England um, and have made the argument that this policy needs careful evaluation. 
And if you go through this, what you discover is that both um, the CDC's guidance and um, guidance over here seems to be drawing on this paper, which is posted up as a preprint. Um, it was a modelling study that's done in the UK by um, Bayes et al. And I guess the statistic that you, you keep um, hearing from this is that after five days of isolation after a positive test around a third so 31 percent of people remain infectious and so i was thinking what's going on because this still seems like quite a lot and infections are rising so so how can this be um what what's going on is it that people are just sick of covid and i happened um to be emailing another another one of, i'm sorry i'll say that again um, I happen to be in touch with Alison Pollock, who's also uh, a professor of um, public health up in Newcastle. Um, and I was corresponding with her about something else and happened to mention this um, query. And she said, I can tell you what's going on. <laughs> so rather than me give you a very poor summary, what I did, Joe, is I recorded Alison Pollock for you um, to share her perspective on uh, what was going on. Great. Well, let's hear from Alison coming back to the show to tell us about testing and isolation. Alison, welcome back to Talk Evidence. Um, we haven't heard from you for, for a while, so thanks for joining us. Um, what I wanted to talk to you about today was around these um, isolation periods. Uh, and I wonder if you could give us a sense to begin with around the kind of context of the evidence here that's driving some of these policies. So um, contact tracing and isolation are key public health measures. But the interesting thing is that the government, the problems with the isolation goes back to the whole issue of mass testing. And mass testing is actually screening. And the government failed to evaluate whether mass testing was actually going to be useful before they implemented it across the whole population. And if you recall, since April 2021, the government guidance has been to the general population should be testing twice a week. It's now changed that guidance, confusingly, to only if you're going to go out. But the big issue with mass testing is it's not just the tests that are a problem, it's actually what happens afterwards, because the intervention, of course, is quarantine of the case and self-isolation of the contacts. And you need to know whether that intervention actually works and whether people, whether what the impact is on transmission, because the whole idea behind mass testing is the intervention in order to break the chains of transmission. Now, though we spent huge billions of pounds, up to uh, 30, over 30 billion pounds on test and trace has been committed over the last two years. Although we've spent this amount of money, the Public Accounts Committee themselves said that there had been no evidence that all this mass testing and isolation had actually prevented transmission. So that's the first problem is that mass testing hasn't been evaluated. It's a screening program. It should normally be very carefully targeted before implementation. And we've also been intervening, uh, but we don't know whether the intervention has actually been successful because it's never been evaluated uh, and the extent to which um, it stopped transmission. So okay. that's the, one so of the we have problems. We have fundamental challenges with this evidence. Setting that aside, we know that both 
in the UK and over in the US and probably in other countries that I have not investigated in detail, there is now a trend perhaps in places to reduce the amount of time that people are asked to isolate for. And reading through the documents um, and, and recommendations of the the various governments and health authorities, I got the sense that there were contextual factors as well as the evidence that was driving these um, changes in policy. Can you talk us through what you think might be going on? Well, one of the things that's quite obvious is that we're at a very different stage in the pandemic now. And what's happening and what was predicted by the scientists to happen is that we would transition to endemicity. So the virus is endemic. It's never going to go away. It's always going to be there circulating in the population, hopefully at very low levels. And outbreaks will occur depending on the amount of population immunity there is, depending on susceptible um, uh, uh, people um, and also environmental factors, um, as this looks very much as it will be a seasonal, um, uh, a season, we'll get seasonal outbreaks. So one anticipates that over the course of the pandemic, this virus is transitioning to being endemic. There's a lot of established population immunity from natural immunity following infection, but also, of course, in combination with vaccination and also determined by environmental factors as well. It's very complex population immunity, but that is now being established. And so what we're going to what we're now seeing, especially with the Omicron, is we're seeing a much more transmissible virus, it looks like, but far less virulent when you look at hospital admissions and intensive care unit admissions. The ICU admissions are now falling, so they're no higher than the average five-year seasonal average for pneumonia. And hospital admissions have also decoupled from the high cases that we're seeing. We're also seeing a lot of reinfection, but what we know from studies that immunity is established following infection, reinfections tend to be much rarer, and they're also infection is protective from hospitalisation. And if reinfection occurs, it's usually mild or asymptomatic. That's what we know from the studies to date. Uh, And the latest imperial study uh, showed prior infection was very protective against hospitalisation. So we're now in this Uh, moving very rapidly to this endemic state. So that means actually we shouldn't be doing any mass testing at all. This is a time for really re-adopting and putting in place the traditional public health measures where we would stop mass testing. We would stop, therefore, mass isolation, which is causing a lot of harm in society, both economically and to individuals. But instead, what we do is reintegrated testing as part of a clinical diagnosis But you still keep your local public health outbreak teams. They're really important because they're the people, when they're notified of an infection, will decide whether that case is actually a serious case um, uh, dealing with where there are vulnerable household contacts or vulnerable uh, people in the community, such as healthcare workers or in nursing homes or or schools, uh, special schools with uh, children with special needs. So you'd really keep your local outbreak teams, but they would be deciding on when and whether to do the contact tracing and to do the follow-up.
So I think there were two really important messages that I kind of took from my conversation with Alison and also from reading the opinion piece online. One is that we never really generated very good evidence to help us make decisions about for how long people um, would be infectious and therefore um, what we should do. But I guess fundamentally, it hasn't been the evidence that's changed here. What Alison was saying is that it's our whole entire approach that we're moving and transitioning from a period where um, the virus is at pandemic proportions and, and that's the way we're kind of treating it and we're trying to restrict and pull everything back, transitioning towards uh, a time where the virus is endemic and we've kind of accepted a certain degree of its circulation and that it's here to stay. And so I suppose it's around our values and preferences and our, per- and our perception um, that it, it's these issues that policymakers have been grappling with. So less new evidence, but more a changing situation. How did you find that, guys? Does that bring clarity? Felt a little hand wavy in the sense like that there isn't better evidence, right? And in fact, the evidence that we do have suggests that there's a lot of people who are still infected who are going to be going out. Now, I will just say that what the CDC has said in the United States, and there's been a lot of controversy here too, is, you know, they dropped it to five days and then said, you can leave your house so long as you're wearing a mask, right? That That's like the, at all times in, in public spaces. Now, does that like thread the needle between sort of public being tired of it all and good science to inform policy? Like what's going to actually lead to people doing the right thing like will people say okay i can do it for five days and then i'll leave wearing a mask and that will even if i'm if i even if i am infectious that will prevent me from spreading it should we be doing you know full-on testing to leave your house you know that that's what these modeling papers are looking at like what's the it's uh it's very hard and of course you know people are human and humans do kind of what they want to do at the end of the day at least in the United States, States. <laughs> where individual freedom matters. It was that kind of, you know, the public's um, acceptability of, of these various things that uh, looked like it was feeding into a lot of the UK government's um, advice at the beginning of all of this, you know, way back two years ago. And I think um, at the time, the, the people who look at public behavior were saying no actually people are quite um good at following this they are taking these guidance on board they aren't pushing their luck so much maybe again perhaps that's just a uk thing i'm not sure um but it would be interesting to see now just how long later if there is any actual data or evidence to um you know where is that assumption now is is that still right or not Now, in a second, we'll be talking about data transparency, but that's after this. Do you have time in your day to stay current with the ever-changing medical information needed to treat your patients? With your busy schedule, it can't be much. That's why you need UpToDate. UpToDate provides accurate, evidence-based clinical information and treatment recommendations in an organised and searchable format so you can find answers you can trust quickly and easily. Join the growing network of over 2 million medical professionals worldwide who rely on up-to-date in their daily practice. 
visit go.uptodate.com slash talk. That's go.uptodate.com slash talk and use promo code TALK to save $25 US on your annual or longer subscription. It feels like, you know, we should start the year as we plan to continue it, and open data transparency is never going to be that far from what we're doing in TALK Evidence. Um, and Helen, you wanted to bring up and talk to Joe about uh, an editorial that Fiona, our former editor, Cameron, our new editor, published uh, about transparency in um, clinical trials of vaccines. I did. This is an editorial that went online with the BMJ um, 19th of January. Um, and it begins with a little story. I think it's quite it's quite an interesting um parallel and they write that in the pages of the BMJ a decade ago in the middle of a different pandemic it came to light that governments around the world had spent billions stockpiling antiviral drugs for influenza that had not been shown to reduce the risk of complications admissions or deaths and there are certain parallels between that situation and what's happening now in the pandemic Um, so we have uh, some effective COVID-19 vaccines, and we've got um, investigations of various treatments going on. And the anonymized participant level data for those trials, for those new products, remains relatively inaccessible to clinicians and researchers and the public. And it looks likely to remain that way for, um, for a while. And what our colleagues were calling for in that editorial is for, for the release of that data. Um, so to give an example, um, Pfizer's pivotal COVID vaccine trial, which was funded by the company, designed, run, analysed and authored by the employees. So you might think, OK, there might be um, an appetite for some independent analysis or, or other work uh, on that. And Pfizer have indicated that this um, they won't be sort of entertaining requests for trial data um, from others for at least 24 months after the primary study date completion. So aside from those trial um, organisers, there's one regulator, your one Joe, over in the US, who is believed to have access to most of the raw data, but doesn't um, on a routine basis release and share that information. So I guess it was interesting to read this and to to read the parallels and to think, could we be beginning to um, make some of those mistakes or unlearn, unlearn those um, lessons? And Joe, we know that open data is one of your um, one of your things. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on what's yeah, going I, on. Well, I, I think that I was really happy to see this editorial because, you know, I think that whenever we can bring attention to the issue of transparency and trust around the pharmaceutical and medical product industry and regulators, it's very, very important. I think there are some important dissimilarities, though, between t- Tamiflu and, and the vaccines. And I guess that what I would just say is... You know, we have been advocating and BMJ has been leading, uh, you know, through, you know, fees leadership around promoting open science, access to data, research transparency, you know, for well over a decade. And this does not limit, you know, these issues are not limited to Tamiflu and the vaccines, you know, for 
as far as I can tell, for every medical product that, that's approved by any regulator, these data should be made public. You know, sponsors should be sharing their clinical trial data after, you know, so that A, we, you know, there's restores confidence and trust both in the product and in the regulators, but also it allows those data to be used for a multitude of other purposes, particularly for research. You know, so one of the things that listeners may not be aware of is that I lead an organization or co-lead an organization at Yale called the Yale Open Data Access Project. We we call it the Yoda Project for you Star Wars fans out there. And um, <laughs> the Yoda Project shares clinical trial data that's predominantly been made available through one sponsor, uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Johnson & Johnson, um, with outside investigators who want to use it for their own research purposes. And it's been extraordinarily successful. You know, investigators request those data. It's not just the pivotal trial data that supports an approval, but it could be any uh, clinical trial of one of their you know one of their products, people use those data for meta analyses to merge it together and aggregate to look at safety issues. They use it to replicate the findings of the trial to make sure that they, you know, that they get the same answer that the company got when they did their own analyses. People use those data to look at the control arms to better understand prognosis in, you know, of specific diseases. There, there's a whole host of reasons to use data like these for research purposes. When it gets to the, the transparency of information that's submitted to the regulators, to me, that's really about trust. And for whatever reason in our world today, because everything that's happened, there's just enormous distrust around the vaccines, around our public health agencies, around who's telling us, quote unquote, what to do that's in our best interests. And, you know, taking steps to use transparency to restore trust would be in everybody's best interest. What so do companies, you see it, Joe, as being like for, from the regulator's point of view, people just want to know what the regulator saw and then they want to check that against the totality of what existed at the same time. Is that the, the number? I think, that, I think that's a big part of it. I think what's complicated with these data is that, um, you know, what the regulators typically release is something called clinical study reports, mm -hmm. or you know that that's sort of what is now being proactively released by some agencies, including the EMA and Health Canada. FDA does not proactively release clinical study reports, but this is like you know the thousand-page documents that uh, you know a sponsor submits to the agency when they complete their clinical trial. Nobody. No regulator releases data. Sponsors have to do that on their own. And so that's just n never been kind of part of the equation to release data. But that doesn't mean that shouldn't be where we are aiming for um, kind of big picture, right? I mean, we are paying a lot of money for these therapies. We're investing a lot in these therapies. We should be able to, you know, pressure test the data. There's no reason that these data should be proprietary. There's ways to make it available while still protecting patient privacy and ensuring that the, you know, the kind of responsible use of the data and good stewardship of the data. So I, I was happy to see this editorial. It's a much bigger issue than just the vaccines, but I think in the context of the vaccines, it will help to restore public trust. And I guess one last thing to add is this really should not be limited to vaccines because in COVID, because we know so much about these vaccines. I've never seen any individual product so closely scrutinized between the trials, the multitude of observational studies, the ecological studies. I mean, everything. We know these vaccines work. We can have confidence in that. Um, we know that they're safe. We can have a ton of confidence in that. I've never seen something studied so extensively. 
But a lot of the medications that are being proposed to treat COVID or quote unquote prevent COVID, uh, I think that the data are much uh, less rigorous, much less strong. And, you know, having that kind of transparency to, I think would help and actually um, would help us better understand the true benefit and or safety of those therapies. Yeah, that is definitely very much written into their editorial that they they want that to be counted, not just for the vaccine studies, but also for those um, treatments for COVID also. I was thinking while we were organising this podcast of our often uh, companion Juan Franco, who's in Argentina, just seeing how incredibly hot it's been there at the moment. What are we talking? Over 40 degrees centigrade, which, yeah, just unbearable. I would find that melting. Same thing's happening in Australia. You know, they're having heat waves, um, records broken. In Europe at the moment, we're doing the opposite. It's kind of minus 33 centigrade down near the Mediterranean. It's, It's just... Everything's a bit nuts. The climate is all over the place. Um, And Joe, we published some articles, uh, some studies just before Christmas, kind of looking at some of the effects of this. And I was interested um, for you to to tell us a little bit more about them and, you know, what they mean. Yeah. I don't know what you guys did, you know, over your Christmas break, but one of the big things that was happening in the United States was the movie on Netflix, Don't Look Up. Did you guys watch that movie? No, I, I did not. Seen it yet. I is do you uh, know it's on my list, but I have to pick an evening where I'm going to be able to stay awake for that long. Oh, you got you have to watch it <laughs> for so many reasons. First of all, it's funny. Uh, secondly, uh, it just it feels so in the moment of you know, the scientists screaming the public ignoring and thinking, you know, oh, you know, what about the commercialization here or the, you know, making money there? And, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal. And I, I have to say, like, nothing keeps me awake more than climate change, which I think is actually going to be the seminal issue over the next decade in public health, the way the climate continues to change our world and how we deal with it and how it sort of deals with us, I guess. And, you know, just before the holidays, you know, I think right at the end of October, early November, the World Health Organization released a kind of seminal report on climate change and health. I think most people probably missed it, right? It's what happens, like, you know, at least in the US, Thanksgiving kicks in. You're bringing it up in January, you've noticed it. (laughs) I know, but I've been thinking about it. Okay, (laughs) you're ready to talk about it now. I, I mean, it's horrifying. You know, they talk about how, you know, between 2030 and 2050, climate change is expected to cause approximately, you know, 250,000 additional deaths per year from malnutrition, malaria, di- diarrhea, and heat stress. You know, 250,000 used to be a big number before COVID. Now maybe we don't think about it as such a big number, but it's a big number. They talked about the direct damages, the direct damage cost to health be- being between two to four billion in US dollars each year. You know, and there's just, it, it goes on and on. And, you know, how many of you out there are paying attention to sort of what just happened, you know, in Madagascar, Mozambique, you know, a huge cyclone hit. And, you know, these kinds of just terrible weather events are happening over and over around the world. And we're just, we, there's not even a bandwidth to pay attention to them. But we did try to keep, you know, the our, our eye on the ball. The BMJ published a couple of, I think, interesting studies related to both climate change and kind of pollution more broadly. 
Anyways, well, what, one of the ones that I thought was quite good was based in the U.S., where they tried to better understand the association between ambient heat and visits to the emergency department for any cause and, and, and for specific conditions, specifically among adults. Now, actually, just last week in The Times, there was a piece around how kids are particularly um, vulnerable to, to ambient heat. But this one was focused on adults and found, you know, days of extreme heat were associated with a much higher risk for ED visits for any cause, as well as for heat-related specific illnesses like uh, renal disease and other mental disorders. Uh, so just, you know, just very worrisome documentation of how, you know, the climate affects us. It's not just a kind of a one-off thing and we have to, you know, pay to pump the water out, right, or, or you know, get inside. But it's, and, and these cycles are getting worse. But some of the more, I thought, no novel ones that we published um, well, I guess one was is not so novel. It's also pretty well established on uh, low levels of air pollution, uh, looking across a series of European cohorts to try to understand the association between uh, air pollution and mortality, um, finding, not surprisingly, that uh, higher exposure to uh, particulate matter and nitrogen dioxide and what they call black carbon are associated with significantly increased risks of, of mortality. Um, but the other one we looked at, and I know I'm summarizing them rather quickly, uh, but this one was a little bit more novel, trying to understand transportation noise in Denmark and, and its association with the incidence of dementia. So this is, you know, a, a climate risk that we don't really talk about. But of course, in big cities, uh, it's something that we all experience is kind of, you know, just traffic noise. Um, and of course, they find um it, uh, associated with a higher risk of all-cause dementia among people, you know, essentially living in areas with 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 higher exposure, and it's a very um, interesting study where they are able to dig down at, um, you know, kind of you know within the population of Denmark because they have such great data uh, there for you know where people live and and traffic patterns and and whatnot. Is there a putative sort of mechanism of action there that would make, you know, because I remember you talking about that before when saying. Um, looking at these ecological studies, it's important to kind of have some basis in, in how this could be working. Well, I mean, they talk about um, transportation noise and just general noise pollution, um, you know, at various decibel levels. And, you know, what types of, uh, you know, how it can sort of be, how, how it can impact disease through... Um, what they say is uh, stress reactions. They, they describe an activation of the autonomic nervous and endocrine systems and stress hormones uh, that are stimulated by noise. Uh, and that's why you start to see um, issues related to sleep and other physiological functions along with cardiovascular disease. It raises quite a diabetes. good point though, doesn't it, Joe, that when these papers get to manuscript meeting and particularly when they're being discussed by you know big medical journals, that... It's hard to do good studies um, on these things, unless you're somewhere like Denmark that has um, very good national record keeping, not just for health, but for other things like where's your transport going and how how noisy are your trains and, and things like that. Um, it's interesting to think as a journal, you know, how can you be helpful um, in this climate crisis and how can we... Um, I suppose on one hand we're serving policymakers with with the sort of proof that um, 
you know, the climate and our environment really are very um, tied up with our health. Um, do we need do we need to expend pages to do that? Do we think there's a job to do to persuade people that um, climate and our environment are linked to health? I don't know. Well, th- this is like gets back to don't look up, right? Like, h- how do you get people's attention? H- how do you make sure that people are listening? So right? you think and people need a reminder? <laughs> I-, I think people need a reminder. And, you know, the evidence is always going to be less certain. It's not like we can do a randomized controlled trial of exposing people to heat, you know, over periods of time versus not and, and seeing what happens. Instead, what we have is population level data on air pollution or on heat or on noise and we can try to better understand whether it looks like people are, you know, worse off because of it. Uh, and by it's ca- quite difficult. The, the other thing that I find hard about these papers is as an individual, you know, if you're an individual doctor out there listening to this and you are thinking, oh, I'm going to I'm going to listen to the latest evidence and find something that I can do. These papers are also tricky because unless you're you are a policymaker unless, and a pretty major policymaker, <laughs> it can feel quite hard um, to think what you could do to make this better. I agree, but also, you know, we often hear about problems that are bigger than any one of us. And it's, you know, it's through collective solutions, right? Working together, prioritizing things, electing people who are prioritizing things. Like that's how you make change. And if if we're not aware of the little, you know, each of these sort of individual problems and how we can contribute to them, both by making noise, but also by, um, you know, identifying the people who could potentially solve them, like, and making sure that it's seen as a number one priority, not just the economy or whatever else. Well, Joe, maybe you have found the ideal time to mention it then, because I said you had come to it late, but maybe in fact, you've come to it early in January, the time of resolutions and new things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say also we've had COVID that feels like a practice run at seeing what kind of arguments will be mustered against the need for large scale change it's um, it's uh, it's probably quite eye opening and, and useful for people who are doing thinking about you know, building those arguments what evidence to uh, to get Well, we've had uh, a pretty packed show for you there. Um, As always, we're going to put a link to everything we've talked about in the show notes. So if you want to delve into those any more deeply, you can do that there. Last thing to do is just say goodbye to my two co-hosts. Bye, Helen. Bye, Joe. See you next time. See you both. Bye for now. And we'll be back in a month with more from the world of evidence. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. Until then, it's bye for me. Bye.